This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Jeff Duncan, Lieutenant Governor of the state of Georgia. Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, exciting to get a little taste of Georgia here on the Reaganism show. Um, You're here, of course, today, not only because you are Lieutenant Governor out in Georgia, but because you recently wrote GOP 2.0, how the 2020 election can lead to a better way forward for America's conservative party. Um, Perhaps not intuitive that the 2020 election can lead to a better GOP. I think most people look at 2020 as a loss and probably putting us into abyss now, at least at the federal level. We don't have the White House, the House of Representatives, nor the Senate. What brought you to write that book? Yeah, you know, it had been festering in my mind for a long time. I'm relatively new to politics, you know, didn't grow up wanting to be in politics. Uh, and I could sense along the way there was some brokenness to kind of the, the approach. Uh, and you could watch us diving into partisan corners. And at the end of the day, I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican because I like the solutions that have a conservative slant to it. They just make sense to me. And so when I watched us campaigning, you know, week after week with Twitter and shallow, you know, approach, you know, jabs at everybody else, it just you could see that it didn't make sense. Now, we'll get into some of those themes in your assessment of the party, but before entering the world of politics, you were a successful uh, businessman, CEO of Wellview Health. And before that, somebody with a clear competitive spirit, having played professional baseball. I mean, you're obviously someone who can deal with competition and, and, and the kind of the fights that are inevitable in the world of politics. Yeah, the, the thing that trained me the best uh, for a politics was standing on a mound uh, you know, not throwing a strike for seven minutes with the bases loaded and no outs. Uh, you learn how to deal with pressure pretty quickly. And there's a lot. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. My kids laugh at me because they're like, Dad, you always tell baseball stories. But there's so much that I learned rotting in the minor leagues for six years, right? I mean, so many life lessons and tenacity. And, you know, you got to wake up every day and realize, you know, why am I here? What's the purpose? And you got to just remind yourself of, of the core mission. And that's carried over to politics, especially in the last 18 months, right? When you're waking up every day and you got sitting presidents, you know, tweeting at you and, you know, being tagged on every sort of negative conservative, you know, website. So uh, I was focused and, and certainly those days helped me do that. So you were uh, hardened in the minor leagues, which prepared you for being on the other side of President Trump after the election in 2020. We'll get into that. But the story in Georgia at the 2020 election, at the presidential level, certainly for Trump supporters and Republicans, was disappointing. But at the state level, it was not. Uh, Listeners and viewers might be surprised to learn, given the national stories around what happened in Georgia, that, in fact, at the state level, there were a lot of wins, correct? Yeah, absolutely. As the president of the Senate, uh, Lieutenant Governor serves as the president of the Senate. I focused a lot of attention trying to get get my colleagues reelected, my Republican colleagues, 53.7% of Georgians voted for a Republican state senator uh, because they believe their message, they enjoyed their work ethic and and, and the direction that our our state was taking. Uh, In that same election, uh, the former president received 49.5% from those very same voters. And uh, uh, that wasn't out of any sort of conspiracy. That was just uh, because not enough people voted for him. And, And look, there's all kinds of distractions from that number, too. A lot of folks didn't actually vote in the top of the ticket. And uh, there's all I could go on for hours. We don't have enough time here to explain reasons why. 
But certainly, but if I take your point, there are you know in your mind and 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 your book throws you know demonstrates the evidence behind it is that there are voters who voted for Republican state Senate candidates, and as you noted, fifty three percent of the vote, and there were the same voters who either didn't vote for President Trump or just didn't vote for president at all. I mean, that, that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, there was a whole scattering of reasons. And look, you could see it coming. I talked about it in the first couple chapters of the book of sitting at these rallies. I, I made a speech right two days before. It was, a, it was a Trump rally, and it was two days before the election, 40,000 you know, red hats staring at me in the face. And I made a couple of – in fact, I, 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 these statements were really driven by you know, kind of a Reagan-esque approach to trying to solve some of these, these problems. I said something like, every time we lower your taxes, it's not just for Republicans, it's for Democrats too. And there was a scattering of boos. And then I said, every time we improve education, it's not just for Republicans, it's for Democrats too. More booze. And then I had the, the, the audacity to say, our conservative solutions are so good, they even help the people that don't vote for us. And I felt like I was going to get booed off the stage. So this goes to a lot of uh, kind of the ref- outlook and, and reform approaches that you offer in your book in terms of how Republicans ought to lead. Give us through, take us through some of you have interesting acronyms that kind of are the shorthand for, for your outlook. Why don't you share that with us? And then the, I'll ask a follow-up question in terms of what, you know, kind of kicking the tires and whether this actually is the solution um, that will lead Republicans back into majorities uh, and into the White House. Yeah. So I believe there's a, a epic vacuum inside of leadership inside the Republican apparatus, right? That's just my, and I don't think, I think I share that with millions, if not tens of millions of other Republicans. And so we got to have an action plan to go forward, right? There's those that want to keep talking about 2020. That's not going to change any future elections. That's only going to be a drag to us. So I wanted to put a plan in place as to how we could win, but also how we could, we could win the right way by solving problems. And so I created an acronym called PET, P-E-T, and I call it my PET project policy, empathy, and tone. And on the policy front, you know, I just genuinely think America is a center-leaning right country. I think a majority of Americans want a Republican in charge of their economy, their future job, their public safety, and their national security. Those are core tenets. And as Republicans, we should never leave a conversation without everybody in that room knowing that, that we really care about those issues. And so I think we need to do a better job of reminding folks. But also on the policy front, we need to be willing to go have real conversations, right? We need to be able to talk about immigration in something other than a primary ad that's run two weeks before the primary. We need to be able to talk about immigration in a way that talks in balance about border security and the 16 million undocumented folks. I think we can lead on that issue with a conservative strategy. The E is empathy. And you know, I, I think we, we, we've watched this play out for too many election cycles. Empathy is really running the right ad at the right time with the right person sitting in the right seat. Empathy should be Republicans all over the country sitting at the table of those single moms with two jobs and two two kids and saying, hey, what can we do to help you? We we want you to vote for us, but we also want to help you. And she's going to tell you two things, because I've done this. She's going to tell you, make my neighborhood safer for my kids and make their school better. Well, as a Republican, I think we're really good at that. I think we could absolutely, at the end of the day, go into those communities and make them safer and educate those kids better with some school choice and other opportunities. And the T stands for tone. And gosh, I almost feel embarrassed having to explain that we need a better tone, but we do. And if done right, I think we can go back to inspiring our country uh, instead of trying to to speak down to our country. Appeal to your greatest hopes, not your worst fears. Uh, That's certainly something that you were... 
heard from President Reagan, so tone definitely matters here in terms of legacy we promote. Um, but let me just push back a little bit. I mean, you know, this is your your pet solution, right? And you know, the policies sound good. In fact, I mean, I think a lot of Republicans like Donald Trump's policies. President Trump had policies that, even if they were if people weren't President Trump supporters, uh, they generally line up with with many, if not all, of his policies. Empathy tone. In the end of the day, as I understand it, there were less than 12,000 votes, less than 12,000 votes that prevented Donald Trump from being, from winning, excuse me, Georgia. Do you think it kneeled, the, the party needs a, a, a full on 2.0 when the you know, margin was so narrow that it was less than 12,000 votes in, in, in Georgia? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it from an electoral standpoint, we got boat raced. If you look at it from a national voting standpoint, it was over 7 million votes. And I think there's an opportunity to lead here. I think we arrive at this election cycle coming up in 22 and then ultimately 24 with this vacuum of leadership on both sides of the aisle. And I think it's an opportunity of, of epic size of, of folks that, that, look, I can't do anything for the outside fringes. I, I don't have a message. I don't have... The, the stomach to deal with the outside 5% that feel like they're going to try to, you know, destroy the Western hemisphere with one Twitter post. But what I do have a message for is those folks that really, truly want real solutions to inflation, national security, public safety, education, pandemic relief. But I also think there's this huge batch of voters out there that are reluctantly, they know they voted for Joe Biden and they, and, and they're upset. They're upset with the lack of leadership they've got. And to me, that's the area of opportunity. That's the area of opportunity to, like no other time in recent memory, to put leadership on display because I think the big takeaway right now is leadership matters more than ever. And we've seen that play out with, you know, look, leadership is more than just a press conference. Leadership is more than just a Twitter post. Leadership is more than just taking a 10-second soundbite and embarrassing somebody on the other side. Leadership is long-term. Leadership is real. And sometimes it's lonely. Well, certainly that... If anyone who reads your book, uh, GOP 2.0, you could see uh, how leadership is lonely and, and, and difficult, uh, what you went through, uh, given the positions you took with regard to the 2020 election and in and, and Georgia specifically. Um, but here we are. We're less than 10 months away from the 2022 election, a very significant midterm election nationally, but specifically in Georgia to what extent are you seeing some of the lessons and points you want conservatives and GOP candidates to espouse being adopted? Are you seeing some of these takeaways from 2020 being incorporated uh, in the mind and the words of candidates on the trail now across the country and in Georgia? Yeah, I'll start with our governor's race. Governor Brian Kemp has done an amazing job of leading our state through some of the most difficult times in our state's history. I mean, him and I came in together in 2018, got sworn in in 2019. Neither one of us would have ever seen a global pandemic, civil unrest, a whipsawing economy. You know, you name it, we've seen it. He's done a great job of putting leadership on display in our state, even in tough times, including the post-election debacle. So for me, Governor Brian Kemp is running on a campaign pointing back to the policies that work for a majority of Georgians. That's where the fruit is. To me, that's where we can ultimately gain majorities that are bigger than just 12,000 votes or bigger than just 1%. This is where you get to the Ronald Reagan type victories where they're just massive waves of support because people genuinely believe you're the best qualified person to lead them and their future. 
And to me, that's what we—that's what we're trying to do here in Georgia. Now, look, there's there's chaos on the battlefield. You've got primary opposition. You've got the former president, you know, on on a on a vindictive tour of trying to you know unseat us. It's all right. We'll survive. We'll get through it. 11 million Georgians care about their future, and so they're going to elect the right people. Well, talk talk to us about your future in politics, and you're up, as you noted, uh, in addition to the governor. I was looking at the reports, and I was trying to discern uh, where exactly you are in terms of running for re-election as lieutenant governor in Georgia. So I love the job of lieutenant governor, even despite all the chaos we've had to deal with. It's been a very, uh, you know, my, my campaign mantra was policy over politics. And, and as the lieutenant governor, as the president of the Senate, I certainly get to live that out every day and put it on display. Uh, I've chosen not to run free election. Uh, and for no reason other than I feel like I want to have a conversation with America. GOP 2.0, the book and the movement is alive and well. And I feel like the, the opportunities to change the direction of our party is too important to just have a conversation with Georgia. And so I'm, I'm going to finish my term strong. We're, we're working hard to get some really important things done here in this legislative session. And then I'm going to go jump on trying to figure out a way to heal and rebuild this party to really execute on this pet project. And, and I think we're going to have great success doing it. And I hope we can do it as quickly as we possibly can. So we're here with Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan of Georgia. You're not going to run for re-election as Lieutenant Governor. You're going to take this, as I understand it, across the country. Uh, perhaps you're already having those conversations and meeting and talking with people with GOP 2.0 and uh, your pet project. What has been the reception? Where do you find people are most receptive to your message? Any surprises along the way? What are, what are you hearing from people when you, when you share this to that conservative GOP voter? So the message is well received in almost every corner of, of the country and almost every, even in Republican settings, it's well received. It's just not popular to say it out loud yet, right? And I understand that. Uh, I've been to New Hampshire, I've been to South Carolina, I've been all over Georgia. We've, we've been to DC a number of times. We've spoken to a number of conferences and, and are fielding requests from all over the country to spread the message. But here's, here's the way this normally works. An elected official comes up to me and they look both ways and make sure nobody's listening. And then they lean over and they say, thanks for what you're doing. This is long-term, the best strategy for our party to move forward and to really try to solidify our future. Thanks for doing it. I'll be with you soon. Um, I get it. I got two ways to react to that. I could be upset and, and hold them accountable on the spot, or I can be patient and know that they're going to come my direction. And we're going to have a chance to really, truly, genuinely change the direction of the party. And I think change the trajectory of the country. Um, and I see it as an area of opportunity for us. As you know, at the Reagan Library, we have our Time for Choosing series, which is on the future of the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Recently, we had Peggy Noonan, a Wall Street Journal columnist and former speechwriter for President Reagan and a trustee of the Reagan Foundation. And her speech, which was poetic and elegant and insightful, all things that wouldn't surprise somebody who reads what Peggy Noonan writes, but the essence of it was we need the party to return to sanity. So she doesn't have a pet project. She says we need sanity. What's your reaction to that, Jeff Duncan? That fits really well into the pet project for sure. And look, I think that I think America is in the process of realizing how important it is to have adults in the room, right? On both sides of the aisle, adults in the room that are able to ask critical questions 
and stay laser focused on solutions. It's so easy with all the distractions that we have in today's media world, right? With social media, you know, all the elements of that, regular media, partisan divided media delivered content. It's easy to take the bait. I think it's important for us long-term to not do that and to really genuinely care about the leadership of, of, of the country. And to me, I think that's the vacuum that GOP 2.0 is trying to fill and with, I think, good success. Let me hit on two other issues that really are animating conservatives. I don't get the sense it contradicts anything in GOP 2.0, your pet project. But at the same time, looking through the book, it didn't kind of surface as prominent as I think others would. So the first one comes actually from Peggy Noonan's speech, where she says, in the century-old formulation of the party was meant to be Main Street, not Wall Street, or any other center of concentrated power. Big business, big tech. Really, anything that begins with big. She says, you know, that's not where the party is. Give me your take on that. Yeah, I, you know, I think we've, we've got to get to the point where uh, we, we, the people, have to change a little bit too, right? So big tech, if you're leaning into big tech's opinion or big corporate opinion, then that, and, and that's your only opinion, then you run the risk of not actually being able to, to understand who the candidates are, what their actual positions are. So look, I, yeah, I think the Republican Party is the party of the people, right? And I think the way we earn that title again is to be the party of solutions, the party that's really, truly understanding what the future looks like. What are the opportunities? How do we prepare for the 21st century? How do we inject computer science into the classroom? How do we embrace global investments? How do we do the things that we can do to create high paying quality jobs in rural America again, right? I mean, one of the things, one of the lessons I learned in Georgia on the campaign trail, for two years, I'd travel in rural Georgia and I'm, I'm a product of the suburbs. I've always grown, grown up in the suburbs. So I show up in rural Georgia and they would all point to these, these you know shuttered up mills from 40 years ago, waiting for the mill to come back. It's not coming back. Those jobs have been offshored. How do we deliver? And I think technology is the greatest lifeline. To me, the party of solutions uh, is one that's able to, to take control. And to me, that that's how I think we get back to Main Street. Second one comes from Vice President Mike Pence when he spoke as part of the Time for Choosing series. Of course, he's kind of locked horns of late with President Trump, simply saying that uh, President Trump was wrong, that he did not, as Vice President, have the power to do anything other than to have you know, a procedural role as a president of the U.S. Senate and allow the uh, electors to be counted and not interfere with that process. But he also said the following. He says, and this is about the Republican Party, that most importantly, our party must continue to impose the left's effort to rewrite American history through initiatives like the 1619 Project, um, and then reference Donald Trump's 1776 Commission, and then uh, took on critical race theory in our schools. How prominent is that issue for you in GOP 2.0? Because it's something that conservatives and Republicans across the country really feel deeply about, restoring American pride. But often it's focused on set, you know where the left is and where the Democratic Party uh, is going with respect to education policy on a general view of American American history. I mean, this is what got uh, many believe. Governor Youngkinnick's uh, elected in Virginia. Where does that fit in your priority list? I think a, a true born leader is not in search of a headline, they're in search of a solution. And so as you talk about all those issues that are divisive and oh, by the way, real, 
right? Having a parent concerned about what, what type of education's in their classroom, what type of healthcare is being delivered. All of those nuanced issues out there are important, but I think we as conservatives have got to have real fact-based conversations that now don't just point out what the other side's not doing right. We also have to deliver what a, a, a tangible solution is to move forward uh, and empower people, right? And at the end of the day, I feel like that's, that's one of the, the, the best traits we have in Georgia is we look for opportunities to empower people to be a part of their future uh, and let them get back integrated into the government process, you know, feel like their vote counts, feel like their opinion counts. Uh, but look, so many of these things are hijacked. So many of these hot topic issues are hijacked with 5% fact and 95% fiction. And it's just like what we saw in the, the post-election debacle that played out here in Georgia and in some other states around the country. There was 5% fact, 95% fiction. And we as conservatives ought to not take that bait. We ought to dive into the details and deliver real solutions. Got it. 5% fact, 95% fiction. In a moment, I want to get to this notion that notion, this value that every vote counts. Are you saying, I just want to make sure I understand, this issue on education and, and choice and parents' involvement in what our children learn in, in our schools, that was a demonstrative issue in the Virginia gubernatorial election. I think at most people, if not everyone would agree, that's why Glenn Youngkin won. Mm -hmm. Just explain, where does a 5% fact and 95% fiction point play uh, to the issue of, of choice in education? I, I can hear that. It plays in terms of 2020 election and and people who think that uh, the election was rigged or stolen. Uh, but it looks like you're expanding that beyond 2020. Yeah, no, I think I think it dovetails perfectly. I think Glenn Youngkin was on to something. 95% fact uh, is, is, you know, he flipped it, right? That's why I think he won. The, the 5% that played out on the other, other side of the aisle, Glenn Youngkin walked in and said 95% of parents should, should have a say-so in what happens in their kids' education. If they don't feel like things are going right, they ought to have a voice in how their kids educate. Brooke and I have got three boys that go to public schools. We're paying attention to what they're doing. We expect our school board to listen to what our parents' concerns are. And uh, to me, we can't be so uh, egregious with our opinion that we can't take on the opinion of those parents. Glenn Youngkin tapped into something that was real and genuine, and he flipped the script. He took it from 5% fact and 95% fiction to the other way around. 95% of those parents believed there needed to be empowerment to the parent. And that was brilliant. I give him tons of credit. And to me, that was such an easier message to listen to and to understand and to, and to work with. And then it lays the groundwork for what's the next issue, as we talked about a minute ago. We talk about immigration. Let's go have a 95% fact-based conversation about immigration. That is, we need border security for immigration flow issues, but also drug flow, human trafficking, and other issues. But we also need to talk about 16 million undoc undocumented folks who are integrated into the economy in one way, shape, or form. Those are real 95% fact-based conversations. But we as Republicans have to flip the script and not take the bait. Well, certainly when it comes to education, Glenn Youngkin, it's clear that that's not only a policy winning issue, but it's also one that wins elections, right? It's, yep, it's a political absolutely. one too. Immigration has yet to demonstrate that you can, you can do something right on the policy front and be rewarded politically. We, we could get into that. Uh, if you want, my well, question. Uh, go ahead. I, I, I'll lay I'll lay out another one that maybe is easier to, to converse about, and it's healthcare. We've done a lot. We've passed 52 healthcare bills in four years here in, in Georgia's legislature that that the governor signed, and it's because I feel like we've we've approached this in as as nonpartisan of a way as we can. 
Healthcare solutions are not going to sit in deep partisan corners. There are just not enough brain cells out there in those outside corners to understand the complexities of healthcare. So we've worked in a bipartisan format to, to understand how we deliver healthcare better. To me, if we as Republicans only complain about Obamacare for another election cycle, we'll continue to lose on the issue. We've got to be able to bring forward more sophisticated solutions that matter in every household in America. Every single household needs and, and leans on health care. And we, we as Americans all agree on two things. We need more affordable health care because it's skyrocketing by the day. And we need better access to health care. We all agree on that. So let's go reverse engineer this and work from those two perspectives. And if we do that as Republicans, we'll win the conversation. Well, no doubt. I think for conservatives, for Republicans dealing with health care and understanding the government role and and most importantly, what we can do to make sure that Americans have the health care they need. It's good when it's happening at the state level, at the local level. I think that's where you conservatives are united around that point and the extent that has come out of Washington. Generally, conservatives, my view rightly, are skeptical. Um, and, and so 52 health care bills coming out of you know, the state of Georgia, the conservatives can wrap their kind of heads around that one. It's it's when you have 52 bills coming out of the U.S. Congress in Washington is is generally when you you have the the critique from the right. Um, let me ask you just on the last one on 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 Virginia. Do you think Len Youngkin has a recipe or came up with a, a recipe that could play out not only in other states but nationally in a 2024 contest? Not talking about the individual, but the type of election he ran. Yeah, it was certainly a beacon of hope for all of us that care about electing Republicans in key leadership roles like the, the governor of Virginia. There's certainly going to be additional races. Uh, it is painful to watch those that still take the bait on the previous election cycle and think that's going to help us close the divide and win, win majorities going forward. Uh, I do think 22 is going to be some chaos on the battlefield. There's going to be some some folks in Congress and others running for key key leadership roles that that went unexpectedly on on both sides of that issue on the 2020 cycle. But look, at the end of the day, elections are about the future and not the past. And I think the strongest leaders like Glenn Youngkin presented a picture of what the future would look like under his leadership. And that mattered. It, it was a better story and it was a, a more believable uh, approach to the future. And I think we as, as as Republicans need to make sure that we stay focused on that. Look, we're having to be painfully reminded hour by hour here in Georgia of how poorly, you know, executed the 20, the post uh, 2020 election cycle was for Republicans. We lost two U.S. Senate seats, not just for us, but for the whole country, because for nine weeks, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler believed that they should they should hire Donald Trump as their campaign manager instead of running a legitimate campaign on their conservative track record, which was solid. Let's talk about that. I mean, and I want to get to Georgia voting rights, and I want to also get on this notion that 2022 is going to have chaos in the battlefield. You've written about that. You speak about that. But you just shared that President Trump lost the Georgia Senate seats. He came out there. And by that, I, I assume you mean, but expand on it, please, that because he was demagoguing and talking about fraud in the 2020 election, that's all he was talking to people in Georgia about. And you have uh, a lot in your book on this. It was kind of hard at the same time to motivate that conservative GOP voter to vote in that all-important uh, Senate contests in Georgia. Uh, did I get that right and expand on upon it, please. Yeah. And I'll add one more important caveat. He told multiple times 
uh, millions of people in Georgia that their vote didn't count. And so 400,000 rural Republicans believed them and didn't show back up to vote in the runoff. And as a result, we have two Democrats as our U.S. senators here in the great state of Georgia. 400,000 in rural Georgia. Now, you know, it's one thing to get everybody to come out for a presidential election, you know, in November, the, the national contest. You know, here you have uh, this vote after the national election. So you're always going to have kind of attrition of voters. They're not all going to be as motivated to come out. So I take it this was that attrition plus something far more significant, right? What, what, what are the numbers as you see it from a normal uh, off kind of election year? I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I will tell you that some that this was an alarming piece. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, had the least turnout uh, of any of the other congressional districts around the state. And so the metrics were terrible. Look, we had a mixed message. We had uh, we, we this is all eight statewide constitutional officers in Georgia are Republicans. We have Republican majorities in the House and the Senate. And as I mentioned earlier, 53.7 percent of Georgians like this is a Republican state. And we, 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 we unfortunately lost the right to send two U.S. senators as Republicans up there because we, we, were, we were told a mixed message of, of everything and stopped focusing on why we, uh, why we should have Republicans representing us. And look, it's a recipe for disaster. I, I, I talk about it in the book a ton. Uh, there's a million different ways that you can talk about it, but I'm choosing to move on because if we repeat the same recipe— we're going to get the same result. And we have an upcoming election for that U.S. Senate seat. I mean, we've got Raphael Warnock facing uh, a, 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 you know, there's there's several folks running. Obviously, Herschel Walker is the most notable name in the race. Um, I, I worry that we talk too much about the 2020 election cycle and not the next one as to unseat who's going to be a well-funded Democratic senator and Raphael Warnock. Um, but we're going to have to watch how that plays out. Talk to me a little bit more about how that match, that contest is shaping up. Are there any candidates in the Republican primary field that seem to be adopting the message that you're talking about? Um, not looking back to 2020, future-oriented, perhaps uh, focusing on policy, focusing on tone or empathy, the things that you're emphasizing. Uh, or do you fear that we're going to see a 2022 Senate election in Georgia that feels a lot like 2020. Yeah, I, it feels like right now the direction of that Senate race is in a positive direction. Uh, I don't feel like there's a ton of rhetoric flying around and trying to re-litigate re the 2020 cycle. You've got you know a handful of candidates in there that are that are starting to talk more and more about conservative policies that matter. Uh, and so we'll see. I mean, obviously, Herschel Walker's got a massive amount of name ID, and he certainly was an incredible football player and Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, I think he's still going to have some tough questions to answer, uh, and we'll see how that plays out. I know that there's others in the race. You got Gary Black, who's the ag commissioner. You got Latham Sadler, who's a decorated uh, military, uh, former military and business guy. You got Kelvin King, uh, who's a former military. There's certainly a list of qualified candidates to run in that race. My hope is that they do truly get to a point where they are extracting what their policy positions are because I, they, they, it matters. And I think Georgians are paying attention to it. I mean, certainly across the country, we're expecting, like most midterm elections, that uh, this is going to be a referendum on the president of the United States. And, and in this case, President Joe Biden, who has seen his approval ratings just plummet. I mean, he's doing really poorly uh, that 
you know, with inflation, with national security challenges. I mean, th those reasons alone, many expect, obviously, the Republican Party to uh, retake the majority in the House of Representatives and perhaps uh, even do better in some of these Senate contests. Do you worry that simply because we're in a midterm, that it's a referendum on Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, that some of these lessons you want conservatives, Republicans, and Americans uh, to, to learn may not be learned here? Well, I will tell you that uh, Joe Biden's first year report card is terrible. Uh, he, has, he has bumbled a number of important decisions around the economy, around the pandemic, around national security. He has certainly not sent a message of confidence to anybody in any part of the political spectrum. And I hope that Republicans are paying attention and remind voters that are in the middle that there's a better pathway forward and that they should lean towards uh, a conservative uh, person to elect uh, in 24. And then also in 22, I mean, folks are distancing themselves down here. I mean, even Stacey Abrams, former uh, President um, Biden came down here. She didn't even show up to a rally that he was at. And, you know, I, I think I've heard a couple of different scatterings of reasons why, but uh, certainly, you know, you usually go on stage with a sitting president when you're in the same party. Um, even if you're not 100% dovetailed. So look, there's headwinds, but we as Republicans need to remind those folks out there of that. That That's what the conversation needs to be. Uh, we, we don't need, need to miss another layup because we're too worried about screaming at each other in the mirror. We need to focus. It's got the and, basketball metaphor. I was expecting uh, a baseball metaphor. Yeah, it's too cheesy, right? My kids say <laughs> I, I talk too much baseball. Um, right? Before, I want to go to the voter, voting rights in Georgia, but you did just talk about the midterms and it was kind of a positive uh, view and, and of course uh, outlined, you know, the concerns with the Biden administration and why that, you know, will likely uh, present a layup opportunity sticking with the metaphor. But you also note that there's going to be chaos in the battlefield in 2022. What are you worried about specifically? What are you seeing out there that is of concern to you? So quality matters. Right. I feel very confident that we will take back the U.S. House, but I want to make sure we've got real conservatives in there, uh, not uh, 10 second soundbite artists. Uh, if we end up electing a room full of Marjorie Taylor Greens to represent the Republican brand in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. House, I worry we're going to have serious structural problems long term. Uh, I don't believe that's the that's the right direction forward. People like that don't care about solutions to problems. They just care about fanning the flames on problems, and that doesn't solve anything. Uh, so long-term leadership uh, is, is going to be important. And so I worry that that could potentially be, be a storyline that plays out. Uh, I hope it's not. I hope we get a room full of adults that are able to talk about and dissect the issues and help you know rebrand re, re uh, the United States around the world and uh, in our own communities. And I hope we're able to take the Senate back too and, and really lay the groundwork for a, a solid, hardworking Republican to come into the White House in 24, beat the brakes off Joe Biden or whoever else decides to sit in that seat. And off we go. We, 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 we've fixed, we've healed up really well and we're off to the races. That's the best case scenario. Got it. I mean, on the one hand, I hear what you're saying. You have these platform politicians or, you know, the 10 second commercial politicians and, and they're not, policy oriented they're certainly not you know empathetic and and the tone is is really catering to to the five percent not the 95 percent i do think though if you're trying to pick off uh, a democrat right to get the majority generally you have to kind of run more to the center right you have to demonstrate a little bit more of what 
and what's you know some of the marginal elements in a presidential excuse me a, a primary contest are asking for. So uh, structurally, you would think that those being elected uh, who are winning seats, taking seats uh, from Democratic office holders, you know, would would drive. I would think in the direction you're you're talking about. Yeah, you would hope, but we also are coming on the backside of reapportionment, so districts look a little different. Uh, if there's, you know, there's obviously a majority uh, Republican legislatures around the country, so you 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 just worry or wonder what those final, you know, what the, what the final product that's going to yield be yielded out of those districts looks like. And, and at the end of the day, I hope it's a bunch of rational-minded problem solvers that come to work every day and want to try to figure out a way to to, to work. Uh, together. And because, uh, look, these issues are real. I, so much of what I do is driven by what's what's it going to be like when my three boys who are 19, 16 and 11, what's it going to be like when they're trying to raise a family or start a business uh, or just live live the American dream like like I've been able to to, to be a part of? What's it going to be like? Are their neighborhoods going to be safe? Is your country going to be safe? Is inflation going to be in check? Are they, they going to be able to afford their first mortgage? You know, those are real questions that really try to drive to the core of why I do this. Well, and certainly it's what's motivating voters in this midterm, because in all those accounts, the view is Democrats are failing them. And, and President Joe Biden has not delivered anything uh, that they can use to address uh, th those challenges. Uh, before we go to our lightning round, one other policy matter, but it's also highly political in Georgia and across the country. And I think earlier in this discussion, you used the word whipsaw. This was def one that definitely whipsawed you, just in terms of all way it shook out. And that's uh, voting rights in Georgia. You had, uh, and you described this in your book, uh, the Georgia voting law that the Senate took up. You opposed that. But then, the kind of way that the process you would think in a democracy ought to work out, uh, you outline how, I think in March of, of 2021, uh, or afterwards, cooler heads, heads prevailed during negotiations. At least, right, you modify it to an extent, and, and that the two biggest concerns uh, that you had and, and many had across the country about the bill that came through the Georgia State Senate, which was no excuse absentee voting and Sunday early voting, were addressed. In other words, they uh, were no longer a concern to you. Uh, you didn't participate in the signing of the bill, but it was a bill ultimately that you felt you were comfortable enough with. Uh, Two things here. Take us through where that Georgia state law is now um, and kind of the national conversation. To what extent do you feel like the narrative nationally in some ways uh, is not reflective of what Georgia uh, state voting law actually is? I mean, you have this famous kind of story where you get the critique of of, of Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, about the Georgia law as he was advancing um, voting uh, reform in the Senate, uh, whereas my understanding is the New York uh, state law is perhaps more restrictive. Uh, take me yeah. through that, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Yeah, so I think it's important to understand for nine weeks, we were under hyper-intensive focus, our entire election process, every letter piece of punctuation in our law was watched upon by millions of folks across the country. We in a bipartisan format realized there were some efficiencies that we could come up with, nothing that would certainly have changed the outcome of the election or made it more legal or any of that. The, the election was fair, square uh, and, and, and legal. 
So we worked in a bipartisan format. Uh, our team worked, and we actually passed four bills in the Senate that were bipartisanly supported of uh, voter ID uh, and some other things that were really kind of learned lessons along the way to help us create more confidence in the election cycle. But against my advice, some folks on, on, uh, on the Republican side came out with what I you know, kind of viewed as a hat tip to the former president and said, hey, we got your back. We're going to put some stuff in writing here. We're going to make it look like we're really carrying, you know, some of the water that you talked about during the post-election debacle, knowing that it would never pass. And I just wouldn't support it. I just I, I just couldn't take what the were brand some of those of, items just specifically. Well, you, you, you mentioned them. Uh, no excuse absentee voting in Sundays, uh, eliminating those. Uh, and I just didn't feel like that was a step in the right direction. We've worked Explain for what no excuse absentee voting is. I mean, what, what and how what a departure that would have been from where Georgia law was prior to that. Well, we have no excuse absentee voting, and there was a pro, there's a process to go through to, to receive those those ballots. And oh, by the way, I think it was 2004. It was a Republican initiative when we flipped from Democrats to Republican control in the in, in Georgia. So it was a Republican initiative that was good for us then, and all of a sudden now because it didn't work out for us, I thought it was a bad narrative. I thought it was a shallow way to lead, and so I spoke out against it. I thought it was it was it was it was an inappropriate way to deal with uh, the previous election cycle, uh, and and then the the, um, the the other stuff in there. I just felt like it was a bad place for us to start. But I will tell you that I felt like we we politicized uh, inappropriately the election cycle. You flip that all the way through the process, it worked. We actually got the bill in the committee. We worked with the House. We took out a number of the bad ideas, and at the end of the day. A number of the ideas were bipartisanly supported as, as individual pieces. The omnibus bill was not, but there was a lot of really good work done in there. It wasn't anything that Chuck Schumer talked about. Certainly Joe Biden grabbed the wrong speech. He grabbed the one that was written two months prior, and he forgot to actually get the real facts and figures, so much so that it caused us to lose an all-star game. Thousands of Georgians were ready to, to, to embrace the whole country to show up here. And because of a speech full of lies and innuendos, and Stacey Abrams kept going right down that path, turned it into something it wasn't. And so the left then politicized the whole election stuff. And, and you watch this back and forth. The reality was the, the, the people that paid the price were, the, were, were Georgians. Hardworking Georgians got used as pawns in the political process. But the reality is the process worked. We took a couple of overreach ideas, we molded them into better ideas, and then we got to a, to a product that, that allows us to have even, even more innovative elections. So at bottom line, the Georgia state voting law that stands today is something that you are comfortable with, may not have all of your preferences, but certainly is not a law in your mind that disenfranchises the Georgia voter. No, we, we had 5 million people show up in the previous election cycle. I hope 6 million people show up. I think if we have even higher turnout in the next election cycle, Brian Kemp and the rest of the Republican-led uh, uh, legislature is going to be reelected because it, people are waking up every day seeing their schools back open, 2.6% unemployment, and we're taking steps in the right direction. Last one on this. What about the you can't, if I'm not working for the election I'm uh, not an official person, you know, uh, that, that's, that's there supporting voting. I can't give that person online water or any food. Where, where, where did that come from? And, and, and yeah, is that an abstraction that, that, that or is that something to be focused on? There, there was two things I just I thought were, 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 were poor taste, right? 
the, the, the even more making it even more illegal to help somebody campaign with food and water as an enticement. It's already illegal. We 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 made it even more illegal. You know, look at the end of the day, if somebody wants, if it's 95 degrees out and somebody wants a glass of water, you know what? I've I've been I've been raised to go help help that person with a, with a glass of water or a warm cup of coffee. What's the rationale for making that illegal? I mean, to me, how does that translate to voter integrity? Can could you even like? defend that or explain that yeah i think there was there was some scenarios that were painted where folks were trying to bring meals in line to get certain folks and it's not really a statewide issue it's a local election it's where somebody's running for city council and 50 votes absolutely changes the direction of the race but all that to be said look we can police ourselves around that i, I feel like we're, we're we're grown up enough in georgia so i didn't think that was a very good idea the second one is is this punitive swipe at Brad Raffensperger. And of course, Donald Trump's not going to let it Of course, go. the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State had a famous removed. conversation with President Trump saying, you need to find me, you know, these 12,000 votes. And um, he didn't cooperate. And yeah, so a little, a little, he signed on Grata. A little cringeworthy, uh, to, 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 to say the least. Uh, there was a, there was a, a legislative, in that bill, they, they removed him as a voting member of the uh, election, statewide election board. Poor taste doesn't change the direction of the state or the election process. Just thought it was poor taste, and you know. But at the end of the day, uh, an overwhelming majority of that bill was good, and I think it allows us to turn the page and move on. My hope is that you know Democrats and Republicans stop talking about elections and start trying to put their ideas on display for folks to vote for. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, author of GOP 2.0, How the 2020 Election Can Lead to a Better Way Forward for America's Conservative Party. We're going to wrap up our conversation with our lightning round. This is where our guests share their favorite speech, book, and Reagan quote. What do you have for us today? So the quote, and I use this all through the book a, a ton, um, is, and this is very impactful for me. Uh, I'm going to read it just so I don't, the person who agrees with you 80% of the time is a friend and an ally, not a 20% trader. I literally use that mantra almost every day in the Senate as we pass bills. Uh, and if you think you're the smartest person in the room, that will never work because you got to build consensus and you got you to get uh, more and more. So I, I think the brilliance of that is going to be, you know, remembered for generations. Um, and so that, that, that's my favorite quote. Favorite speech uh, was probably near and dear to my heart was the challenger speech, uh, the post, post tragedy that day. Uh, I was a young kid. I actually, that was like the first national tragedy I remember watching on TV. I don't remember what age, I'm 46. So whatever, whatever I was in 1986, but um, I guess 11. So I watched that play out and then watched that speech. And for me, I, I just, I hung on every word. It, it just took a great moment to be the great encourager. He wasn't a president. He wasn't the CEO of the country. He was the great encourager. And I got to intersect with that. I ended up writing a letter to the president uh, at some point when I was young, President Reagan, and asked, one of my friends was uh, hearing impaired. And I asked if he could put um, uh, a, uh, you know, the sign language, uh, closed captioning on the press conferences. And we received a letter back. Now the ball was probably already in, in motion and whatnot, but uh, it just, it planted a seed in me that I was so close to the president. I could write a letter to the president of this great country and get something back that was meaningful. Uh, and to me, that was a great encourager. And I have, I have watched, you know, the, the conservatism of, of, of Ronald Reagan. I've watched uh, all of the the different styles that he communicates, but at the end of the day, the greatest trait, he was a leader. Mm. And every organization I've ever been a part of that's been worth being a part of 
has been led by a great leader, somebody who sees past the fog. Certainly a speech that reflects the empathy and, and tone, which uh, you emphasize in this conversation and, and in your book. Got a, got a book to advocate there, or should we wrap it up? No, you can wrap it up, but I've got, I'm like six pages into this. All right, there we go, McGraw scenes, okay. So, it looks like you got a few more pages to go. Oh God, it's thick. I didn't realize it was that thick when I bought it on Amazon. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you so much for being on the show. Best of luck to you. Thanks for the opportunity. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.